we will hear from the New Testament today is from the letter to the Colossians. And today, with us being squeezed together, we can imagine more easily that we are in together, squeezed into a house church, listening to a letter that has been shared with us across the years, across the miles. The text is written to the church of Colossia, a cosmopolitan city that served as a trading port in the Mediterranean. Many cultures and ethnicities bumped into each other in this city. There are many different philosophies and interpretations of religion. This letter arrives as a teaching tool. It is written by someone in Paul's voice, and it's working hard to teach us something for our lives today, for our spiritual lives today. So let us listen to the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers All things have been created through him and in him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have something to tell you. There is no secret There is no secret to being a Christian, to being a Presbyterian, to being a pastor. There is no secret. We might sometimes use churchy or theological language that needs some explanation, but there is no secret to becoming these things. There is no secret text. There is no secret ritual. There is no secret rite of passage unveiled only after you've gotten to some inner sanctum of learning. Ellick and I stand before you as pastors because we have studied theologians and scholars, because we have had conversations around church case studies and learned something of church governance. We have taken more exams in these topics, perhaps, than you. And we have taken very particular, very important vows. However, there is no secret to us being here. These vows were made in public in a service of worship nearly three years ago for me and a few more ago for Alec. And everything we have studied, we derived from the Bible, from the book that we hold up on that pulpit every week, from the book you often have in your pews written in a language that you can understand. 
It is all at our fingertips. There is no secret text. There are no secret gatherings. Our council meetings are open if anyone would like to come. Our session meetings are open. We hold congregational meetings to approve big changes, and we share council minutes to let you know about the little changes. And this isn't to say everything always operates smoothly. We can attest to that today. And it isn't to say that people are always on the same page. The Bible isn't simple. The church doesn't always run as it ought to run. We work and study and disagree and change our minds and get bored and get fired up and gnash our teeth and rejoice and get back to work again. And no matter what, though, no matter what happens, it is true that our church is not a secret society. There is no secret. And this same claim goes for our understanding of God. We might not understand God. We might get frustrated and even irate. We might yell at God or grieve about the way the world is or desperately want to know why things are the way they are. But the scriptures tell us again and again, there is no secret about it. The God that we cannot completely see is nevertheless revealed to us in Jesus. The God we cannot fully fathom is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus is the prism through which we begin to contemplate the infinitude of God. This doesn't mean we understand everything. This doesn't mean we are always happy with what we learn. But there is no secret. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one who contains the fullness of God, as the text in Colossians tells us. And the writer of Colossians believes this is a very important point. Colossians was written in a world and a culture full of Gnosticism. Gnostics were various cults and movements of people who believed that this material world was irrelevant, that what you had to do was study and try to transcend to the spiritual world. They believed that secret knowledge was available to select people who studied the right texts and did the right rituals and learned the right knowledge, and then one day they would be able to transcend and access the secret knowledge of God. Paul is saying, no, that's not how we work. That's not how this new thing we call following Jesus works. Our culture here in the 21st century doesn't use the word Gnostic. That is a churchy word. But we can see the remnants of the thought system if we look around. We are in a culture that likes to sell secrets. Look at a magazine rack in a checkout line and see how many offer to reveal certain secrets about a celebrity's private life or the secret to healthy skin, the secret to weight loss, the secret to getting a guy to like you or having the best abs in the locker room. And indeed, about 10 years ago, a book came out that hit the top of the bestseller list. I don't know if you remember it. It was called simply and succinctly, The Secret. We might not call ourselves Gnostics, but we do like our secrets. Secrets make us feel powerful. They make us feel good. Secrets make us feel like we are part of a club that is special simply because it excludes others. I know a secret, and you don't. The author of Colossians understands this. He gets the allure of secrets. 
He gets that money and influence are made on the selling of secrets. He knows the power of secrets in religion, and he is determined to defeat it. So he writes these beautiful verses about our triune God. He shares what was probably an ancient liturgical hymn. He uses lovely language to declare that God, the one who is the most powerful, the most mighty, our God does not work through special secrets shared only with select individuals. Our God, our creator, our redeemer and sustainer, the one who holds all and is in all, the one who shapes and loves and reconciles all creation, this one is made known to us in Jesus Christ, made known to us in ways we might not fully understand, but which we are able to profess and contemplate and study and get to know more and more as our lives go on. Our God is made known to us in Jesus, and not only to us, not only to this particular congregation, this particular batch of Jesus followers, but to everyone, everyone who is hungry to know God, to everyone who lives into the hope of the gospel, to everyone who longs to stand steadfast and secure in the faith. Even the act of reconciling our sin, even the event that makes us able to stand before God without shame, even this event is not a secret ritual, a hidden bargain tucked away in a back room. The place where we start to understand God's terrific grace is none other than the cross. And there was nothing secret about those who were crucified on crosses. This was a very public sign of humiliation and punishment the Roman authorities made sure of that. And so we remember this cross as the very public place where God reveals how much God loves us, where Christ reveals how deeply committed to us he is. The cross is a place of exposure. It's a very public profession of God's love in the midst of our rage, of God's grace in the midst of our brokenness. Exposed on a cross, Christ reveals there is no place God won't go in order to bring about reconciliation in all of creation in heaven and on earth. There is no secret in God. There are things we do not yet know. There are dimensions we cannot yet fathom. But there is no secret available to some and not to others. The word, as you can see in the bulletin for the week, Suggested by one of you is the word health. And this might seem like a leap, since I've been talking about secrets. After all, in a life of faith and religion, what do secrets have to do with health? But I think that anyone who has lived in a household, a family, a workplace, or even a church where there are lots of secrets can attest to the fact that these weren't very healthy places. Secrets and health don't go together very well. Secretive lives do not often lead to healthy lives. And so when this gospel writer pushes back against secrets in religion, he is trying to teach the people what a healthy faith life looks like. Two things I want to point out about health. One is that in our middle and upper class American culture, we are obsessed with health. Books and magazines and internet articles galore pour out suggestions on how to achieve better health. And we even tend to judge people who aren't healthy. 
We are obsessed with health, but it's pretty much only individual health that we focus on. We cheer on people towards personal weight loss goals or marathon times. We are good at showing up when a person has a cancer diagnosis and showering them with cards and casseroles, telling them they can beat and battle this disease. We are very good at talking about individual health, at cheering on individual achievements with very aspirational goals. But when there is not a goal to achieve, when there is no one thing that could be conquered or kicked in the butt, we are not very good at dealing with health challenges. As a culture, we aren't very good at caring for people with chronic diseases or mental illness. We aren't very good at figuring out how to live full and enjoyable lives alongside people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. While we are fixated on good health, we would much rather focus on individual, aspirational health rather than talk about communal health or a version of healthy people that don't fit our aspirational model. The second thing I want to point out about health is actually a bit more nerdy. It's the etymology or the word history of this specific word. Health comes from an old English word that means whole. It is related to the word hail, as in hail and hearty. To be healthy is to be whole. And in fact, some scholars believe it might even be linked to the word holy, as in to make something holy is to keep something whole, unbroken. And marketers have picked up on this connection between health and wholeness in recent years. And so we have a plethora of places that promise whole food or whole health. I even follow an Instagram feed that is called Whole Family Rhythms. These places promise wholeness for ourselves. They promise that if we try hard enough, we individuals can be whole and healthy and perhaps even wholly all on our own. However, there is a problem with this promise. There is a huge and unavoidable problem with the promise that we can be healthy and whole on our own. We are human. We are human. We are imperfect. We are not our own creators, redeemers, and sustainers. We cannot be whole and healthy on our own. We are imperfect. We have been and always will be world without end. We are not the one who is the beginning, the firstborn of all creation, the one who is before all things and in all things, things are held together. We are human. We are not complete all on our own. James Martin is a delightful Jesuit priest who's based in New York, and he was known as the chaplain of the Colbert Nation when Stephen Colbert still had the Colbert Report. And he tells this story, perhaps you've heard it, about one of his sessions with his spiritual director, it was a time when he was full of frustration and annoyance. He was annoyed about his work, his relationships, annoyed about his spiritual life and how he was falling short and how others were falling short and how nothing was going as he thought it ought to be going. His spiritual director said, James, I have two pieces of good news for you. One, there is a Messiah. Two, it is not you. <laughs> We are human, we are imperfect. And when we talk about wholeness and health in our church and spiritual and personal lives, we have to remember that it isn't about what we can achieve on our own. 
It isn't about what we can hide from the world in order to pretend that we are holding it all together. Health is not about achieving perfect bodies or well-rounded organic meals. Health is about admitting that we cannot be complete on our own. We cannot be healthy all alone. If we can admit that this isn't all about us, if we can begin to understand that the health of our lives isn't based on some standard that we alone can achieve, then maybe we'll finally feel freed, freed to live a more joyful and connected life, a life that is made full by the grace of God rather than the achievement of ourselves. We are made whole by grace alone. We are made holy by grace alone. And perhaps I should frame this as a secret and package it up as a secret gift our church could offer the world. Perhaps I could entice people in by saying, if you get through our doors, if you get approved to come on in to our secret rituals of worship, you'll discover this secret to a fulfilling life. But we don't mark it in secrets. And every Sunday morning, we throw open our doors and we allow anyone who wants to worship to come and worship with us. And if they come, they'll discover that each week, we claim out loud this giant secret, this giant secret of our imperfection, of our incompleteness, this giant secret that maybe we need each other after all. We claim this need so publicly and so regularly in our worship that maybe... It isn't such a secret, after all. I am full of brokenness and failures. You all are full of brokenness and failures. That's okay. We don't have to hold all our pieces together. That is God's job. And we are not God. And God is okay with that. Glennon Doyle Melton is a well-known blogger. She found on Momastery and has written a book called Carry On Warrior. We've quoted from her before. She is very open about her struggles with alcoholism and bulimia, about her desperate attempts through childhood and teenage years and early adulthood to pretend that everything was perfect and that she was effortlessly thin and beautiful and healthy all the time. And she writes this book, this word in Carry On Warrior. She writes this phrase, holy holes. And she talks about the holy holes in our everyday lives. She says, Life is a quest to fill the unfillable things. We are put here needing something that doesn't exist here on earth. Anne Lamott calls this unquenchable thirst our God-sized hole. I've tried to fill this hole with poisonous things for 20 years, and now I still have it. And I do admit I still try to fill it with things that are less poisonous but equally ineffective. I shop too much. I move a lot. I decide that bliss is just a new house or town or state away, but it isn't. Wherever you go, your emptiness goes with you. It's maddening. However, I have discovered a few things that do help my God-sized cavity. Writing, reading, water, walks, forgiving myself every other minute, practicing easy yoga, taking deep breaths, and petting my dogs. These things don't fill me completely, but they remind me that it is not my job to fill myself. It's just my job to notice my emptiness and find graceful ways to live as a broken, unfilled human, and maybe to help myself and others feel a teeny bit better. If there is a silver lining to the hole, here it is. 
the unfillable God-sized hole is what brings people together. Holes are good for making friends, and friends are the best fillers I've found yet. I have never made a friend by bragging about my strengths, but I have made countless friends by sharing my weakness, my emptiness. When we use our emptiness to find God in each other, we become holy. It is a big shift to believe that our health involves more than just our individual aspirations. It's a big shift to believe that our health involves how our weaknesses might strengthen each other. Being whole and healthy in faith is not about who we are alone, but who we can become together, made complete in the presence of Christ in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Whether we name Christ's presence or not, Christ is here. And so I wonder how we might start to claim our own need for wholeness, apart from our individual achievements. And I wonder how we might start to treat things like disease and disability if we saw our health as bound up in each other, if we saw our wholeness as made complete only by God's grace and love that we can share with each other, if we each practice admitting our own current needs and weaknesses which aren't going away, admitting our own emptiness and our own unfillable God-sized hole in our lives, I wonder how we could change our communities, our neighborhoods, our world. None of us are complete or healthy all on our own. None of us are the Messiah, but there is one, and we can come together and tell stories about him, We can share our own experiences and listen to others. We can sing songs and pray prayers and ask over and over again, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? What does this mean that we are being called to respond to this Jesus, this image of an invisible God? Friends, none of us are expected to be whole and healthy on our own. This is not a secret. This is is the good news. Let us pray. Holy One, in you we live and move and have our being. We do not rest until we rest in you. Fill us now with your love and grace and commitment to service. In your holy name we pray. Amen.